On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dong Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dong group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dong's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. As always, I am joined by the multi-talented communications expert and journalist, Stefania. Steph, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? And I, well, before I ask you how you're doing, thank you for still referring to me as a journalist because I, I do miss those days. It's been like th- almost three, over three years now. Um, so yeah, thank you. That was very sweet. But yeah, how are you doing, Michael? Good. Good. Hey, it's Pride Month in Ontario mm-hmm. and uh, Blue Door is celebrated in a big way. And I think the biggest thing we did to celebrate was actually uh, listen to the research and open up a new program called Inclusion, um, which is for uh, youth from the 2S LGBTQI plus um, uh, population or youth identified from being from the, And it's been great. We've got three youth living there now. Uh, it was a huge gap. Our youth didn't have anywhere to go. And, and so, yeah, I think that's how you celebrate pride. And so lots of fun stuff happening uh, in Ontario uh, in celebration. How about at CAEH? What's going on? Oh, you know, uh, well, first of all, congratulations. I think that's really exciting. What an amazing uh, new project for you guys. I think that's that's so wonderful because you guys already do so, so much at Blue Door. So it's great um, to see you guys adapt and change and open doors for more folks to be more inclusive. That's really wonderful. Um, at CAH, we are going full speed ahead with our vote housing campaign. I really, really, really uh, would love it if folks listening today went to votehousing.ca and pledge to vote housing um, and make sure that we see housing on the ballot for the federal election that we know is coming up before the end of this year. So yeah, at CH, that's kind of the big thing that we're working on. And of course, preparing for our November conference, um, which is going to be virtual this year. So some of the big things we're working on right now. Very exciting, very exciting. And here's something else that's exciting. We have a fantastic guest today, someone that I have been uh, chasing to come on the show for a while because he is such a busy individual. And you'll see this when I read his introduction, you'll say there's no way one person can do all of this. Um, and he just keeps going, right? It's for the the betterment of uh, of, of uh, community always. It just, I, I follow him on social media and um you know, just seeing the passion and how he's holding people accountable and pushing people to do more always, uh, just very admirable. So today's guest is Dr. Andrew Buzari. And so Dr. Buzari is a primary care physician and uh, ED of Population Health and Social Medicine at the University Health Network, where he's also working to develop, evaluate, and scale new models of healthcare delivery for patients with complex health and social needs. He holds academic appointments in the Department of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation, and at the Mailman School of Public Health from Columbia University. Dr. Buzari completed his medical training at the U of T Health and Policy Training at Princeton University, he's got a master's uh, in public policy and continued to Harvard University for a master of science, uh, where he was the founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Public Health Review. He also, uh, oh, so he maintains active research at Harvard and the Wesleyan Institute during the pandemic, because he wasn't doing enough already when the pandemic hit. uh, Dr. Bazzari also serves as co-lead of the Ontario 
Health Toronto Region COVID-19 Homelessness Response and is a member of the Canadian Medical Association Post-Pandemic Expert Advisory Group. Um, and in his spare time, he leads the UHN's social medicine program, which aims to improve health outcomes and defend human dignity by integrating a person's social context into their care. Just absolutely amazing. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling tired just reading through that. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you so much, Michael and Steph. And I'm so sorry they put you through that and sending that bio order <laughs> that is. I will, the first thing is to just have, yeah, a truncated two-liner. I think that's just to continue for the university to not uh, be on someone's case, but really appreciate it. And, and um, just likewise, you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for months. And I know that uh, the pandemic has, um, you know, played its toll out on on all of us so really looking forward to this today and, and really just honored to be able to have the space and the conversation with uh, you and Steph today so thank you absolutely and it's actually really nice to hear everything that you're up to because it just I think it amps up our listeners and I, just even myself to uh, have the opportunity to talk to you and we're both so grateful to have you on today um, just knowing how busy you are and the important work that you're doing um, so my first question to start things off is um, you know you've written and spoken so much about the inequities in our healthcare system in that the healthcare you receive links to how much income you have uh, despite the fact that we are you know, supposed to be a universal healthcare system in Canada, you know, so can you talk to us a little bit about those disparities? Yeah, thank you, Steph. I mean, I, I think, again, and, and, and really part of the excitement to be on your show is just, you know, how much knowledge there is in the listenership. And again, none of these things for, for folks tuning in is in any way new about this longstanding relationship between you know, income and other social factors and health outcomes. And it goes back to, you know, obviously the origins of our country, but well beyond of where researchers were studying the differences in health outcomes and life expectancy across different neighborhoods uh, in Paris back in 1810, 1820. So this goes back centuries of where whenever we wanted to countermeasure just how um, poverty was impacting health outcomes, it has been there for the, the, the test of time. And so it, it's one of the things that sort of coined as the pathologies of poverty and really trying to think differently um, about our, as you mentioned, universal system. And I think one of the arguments that many have made but has really had uh, resonance with me is just how I believe the moniker universal has been holding us back in thinking about these social determinants. I think there's this aspect in being so close to the United States, which is you know, the world's largest economy, but without a universal health coverage, without ensuring that people have access to the most basic healthcare needs. And in some ways, again, there's been a lot written on this that being beside this elephant has actually really uh, held us back in examining and critiquing our own system about really how true is the universality uh, and how far does it really reach? And I, I think part of this is when we talk about the universal healthcare system, we've rested on some laurels that go back to the 60s of when the Medicare system was passed to believe that, well, everyone has access to healthcare and it's free. Um, and when you start to drill down a bit deeper, realizing that, that that's not entirely true, that there are different costs that are placed on different populations that have been imposed. And that when you look at healthcare access, because of these social factors, because of the barriers imposed by poverty, you know, you could take any health measure from cancer outcomes to chronic disease, cardiovascular disease, um, mental health, and there is a very strong gradient across uh, income. And uh, whether that's access and outcomes, it is, again, holds very strong. And so that's kind of where, you know, pre-pandemic the, the focus really was about this mirage of universality and that we had to really bust through. It was one of the pieces uh, we've written, co-written in uh, the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Um, and in a really hard way, uh, that was February of 2020. And I had no idea that we were about to go into a pandemic that was going to expose and exacerbate so many of these health inequities um, in ways that, um, I don't believe any of us really were able to uh, to predict. 
no, yeah, no, no one at all. And, and um, it's hard to believe, you know, we're what about a year and a half into it. Now, I want to expand on the inequities and how they link to health prevention. Can you walk us through, talk about maybe um, what you've seen around the increases in death from preventable causes since the early 90s? And like, is this happening in, in, in all neighborhoods equally? And, and why with so many advances in healthcare, is this happening at all? Right. And, I, you know, it's a great question, Michael. And I think part of it, too, to just, you know, be really candid about uh, the predictions is once the pandemic was here, many of us in public health, many in community, anyone who's been in this work and your teams elsewhere knew exactly who the pandemic was going to affect. And it was not going to be this great equalizer. Uh, I'm not an infectious disease doc, however, was not following the trends of when we were supposed to be due for our next pandemic. So that was really the surprise. But in terms of the disproportionate toll, you know, we all dreaded that once we knew that this was you know, about to take place in, in February or early March of the fact that we were real, you know, really in a global pandemic. Uh, and of course, we're still seeing its reverberations uh, across different parts of the planet and within our own country. Um, in terms of the question of when you look about the 90s and neighborhoods, there's been some really good data and research done about the preventable deaths that we've seen, that if really every neighborhood was able to get the same healthcare access, have the same social supports in place, uh, what would happen to that differential? And the reality is there's been a differential throughout this time. And it's a really good point about, you know, healthcare advances and the technologies. One of the things that we've seen is that one, you know, even in a universal healthcare system or single payer, technologies, when they first come out or innovations, still really benefit those in affluent neighborhoods first. And then there's a bit of a spread over time. So we've seen generally increases in health outcomes and improvements um, in life expectancy, but it's definitely been differential. It's been inequitable in the sense that it's not been shared as widely as you would hope uh, in the system that we have or that we want to have. Uh, and so one of the things that I always sort of talk about is sort of flipping that question a little bit on its head, Michael, is, you know, how are we as what, how many people are we willing to allow die every year that is preventable in each neighborhood in choosing to do nothing? And I think we've just accepted that, okay, well, there's going to be differential rates, but no, it doesn't have to be that way. And we know that there's certain neighborhoods that have been inoculated and safe from a lot of the disease states and conditions pre-pandemic. We've seen again with COVID, there being differential in rates of 10 to 20 times in different neighborhoods, some being right in you know, downtown across different postal codes. So I would really hope like pre-pandemic, that's how we were trying to push the conversation of what are we willing to accept? Because by not investing in the social policies like housing and income and basic income, we are allowing deaths to take place. And we can't shirk and look away from that. And I think again, you know, in terms of as we're getting to the, the conversations of the pandemic, it just ripped the curtain back of anyone being able to try to not talk about this or see this play out um, as everyone was trying you know, to, to wrap their head around what the pandemic was gonna mean, how people get it and how interconnected we were. And so there was this real shift in people not being able to look away. And I think that's one of the pieces in terms of that question is now, especially coming into this post pandemic, what are we willing to accept if we're saying that through this last year and a half, we were gonna be all in this together, we are gonna understand how connected we are. Well, if that's true, and I, I really hope to believe it is that we do come out of this better and stronger, then what are the actual social policy uh, commitments and meaningful ways that we're, we're wanting to, to see us save lives uh, that go beyond just what the pandemic um, has exposed? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, we have seen in this pandemic, one of the things we learned is kind of something we suspected all along is that when these big problems happen, we actually can move really quickly. We can either as society members decide to stay home and completely change our lives um, and, and ride through that upheaval. And at a policy level, we can implement policies. We can make funding available in these huge swaths to fight a problem. 
um, really, really quickly. So we know that those resources and abilities are there. I think it's just that political will and that intent um, that we need to see applied equitably across the board, not just when these big, huge, huge, huge problems come now that affect everyone. Um, we have to care all the time, I think. Um, so, and, and that kind of leads me into my next question, you know, because you've been so outspoken about the importance of addressing the social determinants of health outcomes in Canada. And um, I was wondering if you can expand for our listeners on this and to be, and to be fully honest, social determinants of health um, was kind of a new concept to me up until a few years ago when Dr. Sandy Buckman spoke at uh, CH19 at our national conference and, and his whole presentation was really built around that. And now I feel like I see it all the time since learning that term. So I'm just wondering if you can expand on that for our listeners, particularly um, linking it to the outcomes in Canada. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah, and, and just such a great point, Steph, about what we be able to have been able to see by the way of policy mobilization, right? And spending in ways, removing the red tape from things that we were told would always be there and would always prevent action um, and lives being saved. And we saw this take place at a pace we just have not seen before. And so I just think it's a it's a brilliant point and something hopefully we can even continue to touch upon throughout the conversation. You know, in terms of the social determinants of health, it's again become one of those things where, you know, it, it's really come into vogue, uh, you know, and again, for listeners, though, there are many who probably, you know, have uh, known about this for decades and are either read or written about it. And, you know, it's great to see uh, your recognition of it, but it's also something that I think uh, all of us kind of have known about intuitively, uh, even as kids growing up. I mean, when I was born in St. Jamestown, which is right across the street from Rosedale, folks are in Toronto. I was on Rose Avenue and then across, you know, the, the street is, is leafy Rosedale. And I remember, I think when I was like six or seven years old, I kind of felt like that's when I discovered like the social determinants of health. Cause I was like looking over across the one street and I was like, you know, the air seems different. Uh, where people sleep seems different. Uh, and the type of jobs and the way people dress and where they're going was different than, you know, my own family and then the apartment buildings we were in where we didn't really have a lot of green space. Uh, housing was a lot more precarious and income for a family and everything. And I think that's really where, you know, the, the social determinants of health is distilled as it's, it's about the air you breathe, where you sleep, where you live, where you work, having such a stronghold on your health outcomes uh, and the health that you can attain or choose to attain. Uh, and that it, in many ways, it is far greater than the impacts of uh, our conventional healthcare system of seeing a doctor and all of the other medical procedures that are there uh, or hospital services are super important when you get sick. Um, but really that what's determining uh, the distribution of disease is those social determinants or those social factors. Um, and, and of course, you know, given the great work from both of you about housing advocacy and housing for all, housing being one of the major determinants of health of if someone cannot have a place that's stable to live or sleep and to start to make the contributions they want to their own health and well-being or be able to get access to things, of course, you can see how everything falls apart without uh, stable housing uh, when you're talking about health outcomes. The one thing I would just also add about expanding is, I, I mean, this might, this is obviously my own bias, but I think we've drilled the social determinants of health enough into our, you know, medical learners and the system and talking about in healthcare. And actually there's an interesting Canadian connection to the social determinants of health because it was really put onto the world stage in that way uh, by Minister Mark Lalonde uh, in 1974, the Minister of Health and Social Welfare. And there's the, the, the infamous and famous uh, Lalonde Report of 1974, which we're actually about five to 10 years before the Black Report in the UK, really put out these, these elements that where people sleep, the air they breathe, the environment and jobs and opportunities were going to have a far bigger impact on health outcomes than the universal healthcare system that was just passed within the last 10 years. And, you know, if anyone wants anything humbling for people in the health policy space, it, I would revisit reading that Lalonde report because any new ideas I ever think I have about like health policy, 
was uh, really well laid out back uh, 45 plus years ago. Uh, so it's a great exercise in humility uh, and health policy. But again, I think this Canadian connection that we were able to, uh, you know, governments and policymakers then were able to draw those connections. But I think there's a really strong argument to against how well we've been able to implement those things uh, to see the evolution of our system. And I think the piece of saying about the social determinants of health, I would help push us to actually start naming things as well, like systemic discrimination and systemic racism really taking hold. And I think in some ways, social determinants of health has become like the vanilla way to wanna to not talk about systemic racism and systemic discrimination. Uh, and that's my hope is that if we can really start to name and talk about the structural factors, we, uh, we may be able to get to actually healthier place. What I don't like sometimes about the use of social determinants of health is it to some people, it's kind of like, well, these are the choices people make, right? If they decide if they want to smoke or exercise or stay at home and it's these quote unquote social factors uh, and they're not working hard enough at their health uh, or they're choosing, you know, they're making bad choices. But I think when we go to talk about systemic and structural is how I actually call it like the structural determinants of health. It really helps shift this away from putting the onus on the individual and more to the, the policy structures that we've long seen in place. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. I love what you were saying about the vanilla way. Um, and, and, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to go in a little different direction because I get really jazzed up about social innovation. When, when people look at things and say, we've been doing things the same way for a long time uh, and we haven't been getting results. Let's do things a little differently. Now you have a very cool and innovative project coming up uh, as UHN is working on an affordable housing development project in Toronto's Parkdale neighborhood. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, appreciate looking at again as the innovation and, and um, you know, what's what's been taking place. I, I can, I'll, I'll try to go to a place of humility on this about this project and the fact that, you know, communities and community leaders have always known about the connection between housing and health and have long advocated for it, um, have long described it, written about it and pushed for this. So I think when you really, you know, when we're trying to frame this project, uh, for me personally, you know, it's, it's really been about hospitals catching up to where communities have been in their deep understanding of the social and structural determinants of health, and especially around housing and affordable housing and supportive housing. And so really when, you know, we're looking at these aspects, one is, uh, how it came about is listening to community leadership and learning from communities that have long, especially in Parkdale, which I don't know um, if either of you have been through the neighborhood or live there. Um, it's just, it's such a vibrant community, right? It's, it's so progressive. It's a special place in Toronto, um, fiercely protective of, you know, any kind of change away from the, the, the really progressive values that they have. Uh, about housing and the importance of community. So there's a lot to learn from the Parkdale community. And, you know, for me, again, as an East End kid, I'm still learning about the West End ways. And um, it's it's been really, you know, a, a learning curve that way, but better understanding, again, the, the values that are there. And of course, um, where and how we as a health system and hospitals have fallen short. And I think part of that is in you know, the way we also have talked about people living in poverty in healthcare has, to me, in many ways been pejorative. When you think about people who are experiencing homelessness, don't have a place to stay, or living in poverty, you know, I remember in my medical training, we'd often be told to refer to folks as, you know, frequent flyers. Like they're coming through the emergency department. Oh, that's so-and-so, you know, they're here like every other day, um, you know, shouldn't be taken seriously because they're here all the time. And part of what I hope we're trying to do and many across the country have been trying to push and lead is how we flip that discussion about us underserving people living in poverty and experiencing homelessness. And that's what I think this project is really about is 
a shift in the hospital's understanding of people who do not have places to stay, what hospitals and healthcare systems can be doing differently to leverage their resources, potentially land, and partnerships with uh, not just provincial and federal governments, but municipal governments that are so local and where there's this real hyper-local movement um, to keeping people alive for the pandemic, but also about improving health outcomes. And that's kind of really what we've been trying to do is, is how to think differently about hospital or health system resources, partnering with community and the city government and United Way and other uh, community agencies and leaders and people with lived experience as to what kind of housing they would want to see, what kind of housing which most first and foremost provides human dignity. And as we know from this large body of literature, we talked about the connection between housing and health will improve health outcomes instead of having people cycle through an emergency department. And the other thing, I'm sorry, I'm a guy because I get, you know, passionate about this in the sense that, um, you know, nobody wants to be in an emergency department. And we kind of talk about people as like health system users. And I, I just find it kind of incredulous that like we've continued to talk about it this way as if anyone wants, I mean, I don't know the last time, I hope you have not been to an emergency department recently, um, but they are not, there's not great lighting. It is a terrible weight. Like the TV channels are awful. It's, I mean, I love CP24, but it's like only on CP24 if there is a TV and like nobody wants to be an emergency department. And so I think it's, again, really pushing in a better understanding why people are there, what kind of supports can be put upstream and how we have to think again about um, poverty and the health inequities as a quality of care issue. And I think that's really what this um, kind of health and housing Parkdale piece really tries uh, to get at. And it's, it's still a long road, but there's been a lot of learning so far. And it's something that is great to hear other hospitals already thinking about uh, and the rest of the system thinking more broadly about housing uh, would just be terrific. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Right, listen, it's brilliant. And I can tell you from uh, my experience with Blue Door, so I see all the incident reports that come through. Um, they just can't keep me in the loop. And the number of ambulances, the number of times we're sending clients to the the er department and just like all all the time just going through boom 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 right and and so we're actually we're we're far behind this is where we hope to get to what you're you're doing now in parkdale but in york region we're working with south lake hospital we have something called an inreach worker because um the ed department is just and not because they you know through intention but they're discharging people in homelessness they have no idea what the services are out there what to do and and, and so we also saw on a different point during the pandemic, we were right, right where we run the isolation site for the region, right. uh, Blue Door. And what we saw is that, and attached to that was a nurse. And having that immediate care touch point with someone in the healthcare system, what a difference it made. We <laughs> were like immediately, okay, you need this, this, and this. I'm going to link you to this, do this, that we don't have at our other centers. And so that's been a big push right now. Um, and for us and others in, in the region to say, we need this at everywhere where we're providing care with housing. We need to have those links into health on site because we'll make a huge difference. And not only will it save lives, it will save money. You know, uh, so, so we see it. And, and I mean, one of the other things we saw during the pandemic, Andrew, is that um, when people, so, so it, was, it was interesting when uh, the CERB came out and the, they were uh, for people's income. I remember one of the staff said to me, look, you know, I know some of our guys are going to get in trouble because they're using Ontario Works and Ontario, the, the um, social assistance uh, platform. They're, they're on Ontario Works, but they're also collecting CERB. She said, so, you know, it's, it's going to be messy and we can't stop that, right? But here's what she said that stuck with me is that she said, we never see them again. They're actually housed. They've got a decent income 
they're moving forward, they're housed, they're healthy, like they're getting, they're taking care of themselves. And it's been amazing. So you see that impact that can, that can have. Now, my long-winded story, all to say, hey, we've been hearing a lot about a guaranteed annual income. And the call for this has become much louder or over the course of uh, the last year and a bit through the pandemic, because we've seen what it can do for people. What are your thoughts on why it's so important to the health end uh, of our most vulnerable? You know, and that's a really helpful story, Michael, in terms of, again, just going back to seeing how this is just really affecting people and individual stories that continue to come up. And there are just so many coming up through this pandemic, right, about the shift of you know, the great work Blue Door and others have been doing about just connecting the health and social sector in a way that was not happening pre-pandemic. And to Steph's point, it just happened at a pace um, we've never seen before that many have been calling about, you know, better integrate health and social care um, for decades. And the pandemic happens and, you know, we finally have, you know, ability for primary care and nursing to be connected uh, to housing and recovery and thinking about uh, what COVID recovery has to look like. So, you know, I, I think that's just a, a terrific point um, and something that hopefully we'll see unpack throughout the rest of the, the next few months. Um, you know, just definitely on UBI or universal basic income. I mean, that was, again, in terms of going back to something, um, you know, I'd written about back in February of 2020, back before with my co-author, Andreas Lopakis. That was one of the major policy recommendations when talking about how much of a mirage our universal healthcare system was, that we had to be serious about things like uh, UBI and, and basic income need to take place. And I remember a lot of the comments, people coming back, uh, you know, just in terms of the shift was, you know, well, who's going to pay for it? How's this going to happen? You know, that's a great pipe dream, uh, you know, to, to both of us of sort of some of the notes, but, you know, generally sort of, you know, nice, nice idea, nice try, never going to happen. And just to your point, right, CREB happened. People went on basic incomes through the pandemic. Again, something we could have never anticipated in calling for that before the pandemic. And my hope is that there's a real shift in people understanding the elements of basic income. And again, I think you can't disentangle um, poverty from the stigmatization and discrimination that takes place of people in poverty. We talked about social determinants of health. It's the blame, it's the onus. Uh, when people have never been given options or opportunities uh, to begin with. And I think my hope with CREB is it's shifted it again for where there's been so much discrimination towards people living in poverty that, you know what, anyone can have to experience what's happening. Anyone is vulnerable in an economy that can be disrupted like this and not potentially be able to have work. Um, the importance of having a stable income through such an uncertain time. And in some ways, I hope this was a, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I can't even say that because you think again about the fact we lost 26,000 people over the last year and a half. Uh, and so, you know, part of my hope, I guess, is you know, how do you honor those lives, right? How do you, and, and how do you really do something? And I think to the points made, it has to be about effective social policy. And um, if we don't really leverage those learnings where so many people have had to take a crash course in poverty, uh, which we no one ever wanted. You know, again, the other thing is none of us as physicians and public health researchers wanted lockdowns, um, do not want them. Know that there are real negative impacts, um, but really measures had to be in place to keep people alive, to mitigate the amount of death and suffering that COVID was um, imposing and you know, really the hope is that in people having to see this shift and seeing how much more connected they are to people, um, that we see a, a difference in the attitudes. And some of the early polling, I think, is showing that, um, Steph and Michael, that there's been a, a real difference in opinion and perspectives on basic income. And again, you know, in terms of why it's important, it, it really just goes back to how are we going to address the pathologies of poverty? And if we continue to sort of say, well, we can't afford to invest in people having basic income. Well, we did it through the pandemic and we knew that was something important to keep people alive. And again, I think it's about flipping the question again and upending it a little bit about how can we afford not to, knowing what we know now, knowing what we lost, 
knowing how uncertain this time was and hopefully really trying to see a wave of empathy in under informing with evidence a lot of the policy decisions that are being made. Yeah, exactly. I think it's been, um, this pandemic has really exemplified while um, it affected us all differently based on our incomes and our stability as far as financial stability. Um, but at the same time, it really showed that we are a connected community. Um, if we can't get folks into housing and to be able to stay home so that they don't spread the virus, that actually does affect the, you know, other folks who are housed and who are, you know, staying home and, and staying safe to the best of their ability. So at the end of the day, we really are relying on each other for our best healthcare outcomes. So like you say, why what's stopping us why aren't we doing this why why wouldn't we care so much about folks who are experiencing homelessness or who are living on the street or are a paycheck loss away from from losing their housing and couch surfing and and all the different ways that homelessness can present itself so i think that's that's so important and i really 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 hope that the conversation around how can serb become kind of a poster child for maybe best practices when it comes to preventing people from experiencing that level that level of poverty right so yeah so i really appreciate you saying all of that and um i kind of have more of a fun question um uh, that we have is, you know, if there were three changes or, you know, if you had three wishes and they were all about change to our healthcare system in Canada, which would be the worst gene in a bottle ever, but um, also the best, I think, given this conversation, right, um, would be the best like social justice genie ever. Um, but, but what would those three things be? Wow. Okay. So three things, and it's about the healthcare system. I mean, there's this yeah, just healthcare out or healthcare outcomes, healthcare system in Canada, and how those are connected. But really, it's however you want to interpret that question. Okay, well, you know, <laughs> it's I, I always get made fun of of loving like the rule of threes, and now I'm getting flipped with this question. So very fair um, to to get hit with this. Um, you know, I think in terms of top three things, I mean, maybe I'll try to do this. I'll give two sets of answers and one on sort of like the policy more sort of wouldn't say dry, but you know, maybe there's a genie that uh, does exist and we can sort of see this happen um, pragmatically. Um, you know, I think one we talked about, if it's about healthcare, you know, in terms of some of the recognition aspects, I think also just really ensuring that we're um, seeing the genie deliver on how ununiversal our system is and when you look at and compare how comprehensive our system is, our healthcare system to other jurisdictions, we are woefully and woefully uh, behind um, and may and are at risk now of actually being more behind the United States. And I'll say why, because there is a bill coming to the US uh, for Medicare from I believe Senators Sanders and Schumer uh, to ensure that Medicare is dropped to 60, but more importantly for us potentially, knowing that people of all ages get access to Medicare, is that they're going to include dental and eye care um, and, and the drug plans that are already there uh, as part of Medicare. So, you know, in terms of the three things, that, you know, one, I, I think you have, we have to talk about uh, long-term care uh, home reform. I mean, we talk about the pandemic, and the systemic discrimination that was imposed on our elders and seniors and the amount of loss and death. Um, there is so much hurt and grief out there rightfully. And that to me is, I mean, how we get through that next year of people having to, you know, cope and live with uh, people who their their fathers and mothers and family members who are not coming back. Um, and again, if we don't honor that, with with real policy reforms, you know, to our long term care system, um, I think that's that's got to be fixed, and um, that's one thing I would ask this gracious genie uh, to deal with. And I think in ways again of not of also ensuring that you know if we have Medicare, we're proud of our publicly funded system. Why are we not extending that same thing to our uh, seniors and our elders? Um, when it comes to ensuring that people are safe and that there's dignity at the end of life or in the last you know, 10 years of life. Um, 
which is incredibly, incredibly valuable to people uh, and important. So that's one. And then I guess the other two is again about our pharmacare piece. We talked about it. We do not have universally funded drug plans. And I think, you know, in terms of the third, I'll try to be awful to this genie and um, try to bring in both of, of uh, you know, dental care and, and eye vision uh, to round it out. Um, so that may have been four, but we'll say it's packaged as three. So I appreciate um, your generosity with that. And then I think on the other three things, um, you know, I think it'd be more in line with what we've been talking about, about thinking differently about health and healthcare and beyond that. And I think one of the things is we have such a strange ethic in Canadian healthcare that um, we don't have an issue seemingly with uh, someone having, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, physicians and hospital networks that we know that there's a, a value problem sometimes of unnecessary tests that can cause harm uh, for patients, most importantly, but is not the most uh, judicious way to be thinking about um, our, our public funding of, of the health system. And so we would be okay with someone getting, you know, two to three uh, CT scans or imaging or MRIs, but we're not okay with this, that the cost of that would cover people having full supportive housing. Um, so part of that would be a shift to think about universal health differently than just about um, procedures, operating rooms, um, all of these really, really important things that happen um, in terms of the imaging that's needed and everything, the technologies, but ensuring that we're not losing sight of that. And I think the second and third thing then is really co-designing what this health system is to look like with people who've been experiencing it, who are the end users, um, who have lived experience with not only the medical aspect, but living in poverty and the discrimination that takes place in designing our healthcare system for people who have long been marginalized and shut out, I think would be a really needed improvement um, that we that we can definitely do. We don't even need a genie for that. Um, and then I think in terms of the third, um, you know, how do we bring the humanity back into healthcare? Um, and it's a real question that I really struggle with given the burnout that's taken place amongst my friends and colleagues. And, you know, again, we're not supposed to be open about it, but, you know, myself to an extent of what people have been through um, the last, you know, we call it like three waves, but there's just been a constant wave uh, a burnout for people in healthcare, uh, for people who've had to see their healthcare shift as well with all the backlogs and aspects that's happened of people being removed or distant and things shifting to virtual and digital. Uh, how do we ensure that the, the human element of healthcare is not lost? And that's gonna, that's gonna be really tough to make sure that the human beings who are providing healthcare uh, are taken care of and in a different way and are able uh, to heal as to what's happened. Um, and of course, for the people we serve that have gone through so much and how are we gonna ensure that um, we don't lose sight of what um, we all had to go through. Uh, but also, as you mentioned, Steph, recognizing that there was and is a disproportionate toll of the pandemic across um, the structural determinants and the systemic discrimination um, and ensuring that that's really a priority uh, in our healing. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were answering that too, I was thinking as well, some of the, the change that I've seen is, is healthcare being more accessible. So being forced to go virtual in so many settings has made it easier for folks who maybe struggle with mobility um, or, or have those barriers in place where it's not such an easy thing to go show up at a clinic or at a hospital or talk to a doctor or a nurse or what have you. So I think that's something I'd like to see around as well, uh, stick around as one of those things that we continue to do. You know, and I think, um, as, as we've seen on your social media, you've been really, really vocal about everything that we've talked about so far um, in our chat. And I think without limiting you to three, you know, what, what can we have done better and what can we do moving forward to not repeat the same mistakes? That was very kind, Steph. It was like, you were <laughs> terrible at answering anything with threes. <laughs> so we will scrap that in the question. And uh, that was very, very nice as the to round out the conversation. So really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I know and I, it, I appreciate it. And it's uh, from you and Michael of referring to you know social media. I think 
it's it's also you know it's interesting how much a lot of this has shifted right with the pandemic and i think for some of us many of us i mean it, it's it's less about trying to portray or put something out on social media but what i've seen it as is these outlets of truth you know and i think that the things that you know you you, you know i think when you look back at the year and a half i think for all of us there is something that I hope uh, hits you to your spine about it being an injustice, and whether that has been about what has happened in our long-term care homes, about the homelessness crisis, the overdose crisis becoming worse. You know, that's again, thing I, it's sad that we have to talk about genies about an overdose crisis that we can change with policies, but that is something that we have continued to allow that epidemic play out because of the systemic discrimination towards people using drugs. Um, about uh, Black Lives Matter and racial injustice that have come up in the last year and a half in a way that we have not seen before. Um, you know, one of those things I hope speaks to each and every one of us in a way that um, if, if not apparent before, awakens people to the injustice that's happening and how unfair our society was pre-pandemic, how unfair it was during it. Um, and so my thing is, you know, I think my, my answers have been out there about what we could have done better. I mean, we had set up preconditions for the social disparities to take place for the disproportionate impact. So to me, all of this was wired for our communities of color to suffer the most of the longstanding hurt for black and indigenous peoples that again was compounded through this, again, the overdose crisis uh, reaching even new heights None of this should have been surprising. And all of this is because of the systems. And again, removing the conversation about blaming people and individuals. And so, I mean, yep, what we could have done differently, it's, it's almost hard to talk about it because these inequities are so longstanding and almost have been ossified, have become bone in the system. Um, and it's like a lot of this work was going bone against bone to kind of push back against, you know, we were talking about, for example, here in Toronto, the Northwest of our city, or I've talked about St. Jamestown versus Rosedale and the difference in the COVID rates. Um, and that's not about postal code, that's about systemic discrimination and being one block away from each other. So this isn't about geography. This is about longstanding structural discrimination. And so when you're talking about, oh, how can we improve the COVID rates and bring them down in a part of town that has never had public resources, has never had primary care access, does not have access to the hospitals, has had been underhoused. That's gonna take more than the weeks that people were expecting to happen. But all to say, I think we need to keep on that vein and keep on that progress that we've seen happen in pockets. Um, and that's what I think needs to change is that if people do not, if we can all just hang on to that sense of injustice, to drive that progress. That's how I hope we don't repeat these same mistakes. If we forget about it, people are like, hey, you know what? I want my two-dose summer and I'm living my life and you know this is, and, and go back to the way things were. That in its definition is of course repeating the same histories, repeating the same mistakes. And so that's I think how I hope from an individual level, we don't shake that and from a macro or sort of meso policy level, we ensure that we've seen some really important strides in the, for example, the vaccine rollout in areas that did not have access in a matter of weeks, really see dramatic increases. Well, you know, if we can do it with vaccines, why can't we do that on primary care and on housing? And I think this is where, you know, hopefully this conversation has come full circle about the pace that we've shown we can, the mobilization that can happen and the really dramatic evidence that has been around when we put a focus, a collective focus to address this with community leadership, with various levels of government, what we can see get done. So that is my hope. And, you know, I will, you know, now use this genie question on everyone I speak to because it's so challenging. Um, but I hope, uh, you know, I hope that sort of became clear without any constraints on the number of, uh, of answers. No, no, it's a all all amazing information um listen i 
I have to ask you one final question and then I want to find out where people can find out more about what you're doing. But I have to ask, you know, when we ask uh, Dr. Turnbull the same question in that, like when you go into medicine, um, you know, there's so many things you could do, but you're so focused and you have such passion for helping our most vulnerable. Where, I, I know your father, I believe, was a doctor. Where, where does this come from? Where, where did, you know, you could do so many things uh, with medicine, but you chose to do this. Why? Well, you know, you know, thank you for the question. One, it's so amazing you mentioned, you know, Dr. Turnbull. Is um, Dr. Turnbull was actually one of the, my closest and first mentor in medical school. I was a first year med student when I met uh, Dr. Turnbull uh, in Ottawa. And obviously I give so much um, kudos and respect to the way he's influenced my career and so many people um, across the country. Uh, just one of the most brilliant people you've seen in the profession with such an incredible heart and being generous to, to mentor so many and all that he's done uh, for people. So, you know, I think um, I just, I just have so much uh, respect for him and I'm so, and I, you know, was really, really enjoyed being able to listen uh, to the conversation you had um, with him uh, and just, you know, the, the breadth of experience he has on it. I mean, I think you know, we all, again, I think have different things that speak to us, you know, in the last year and a half, but obviously through uh, the course of our lives. Um, and, you know, I think part of it too, on the housing piece is, you know, I was born into social housing. Uh, so there's a passion there in terms of where, you know, I've seen that um, the opportunities for everyone was not, it's not been equal. And that was, again, apparent to when I was a kid about, you know, not only in our own hallway or looking across the various um, high-rise buildings we were in, but what that looked and felt like uh, across the street um, of where it just felt like, you know, it was a totally different land. Um, and I think, you know, that's always stayed with me. And I mean, you know, you mentioned um, my father. I mean, I never wanted to do medicine. I mean, one, I think because he was in it, I think we all sort of have those views about, you know, what our parents do and what we want to do, uh, maybe run in the total opposite direction. Um, but more than my father in terms of, of what he was doing now was, I think, you know, really what he went through. Um, you know, he's a very, you know, private person on this and we sort of talked through, but it's, it's been, you know, more and more, um, I think of, of accepting of where uh, it's been is, um, you know, my, my father was in prison for four years as a political prisoner um, and uh, as a med student, you know. And so when I look at these things of, you know, some of the parallels that play out, but really I think the one thing is the, the dedication to um, the social justice and um, what kind of risks and consequences we have. And so I think, you know, of course, some of it we talked about, you know, being vocal on, on Twitter or social media has costs for sure, has risks. And there are people saying, you know, if you're gonna come out and, and being um, a physician who's wanting to, to be outspoken on issues of social justice and human rights, there can be career consequences, you know, and I look at, again, what my father went through, you know, of course there's consequences. Uh, and, and fortunately, you know, they're different here in Canada, but they're all very real. And again, what I think um, my father's journey and as a refugee uh, in this country and what he uh, was willing to give up for progress and for democracy um, is something that obviously I think has affected me at a cellular level that, you know, you only start to begun unpacking when really uh, smart, well-meaning people like Michael ask you why you do what you do and you think psychologically to never think about it. So you don't, you know, unravel on like a therapist's couch, you just kind of do it. Um, you know, it obviously, it obviously plays out and affects it. So, you know, again, I think there's been incredible mentors that have pushed me towards this in medicine. There's so many to count, but Dr. Turnbull, of course, um, one of them and, and one of the first and who, and, and still someone who continues to shape the way I think. And then obviously I think our own kind of family circumstances and, um, part of it too, is I know that some people where I was born did not get the same opportunities that I had. And I think a lot of that continues, um, to drive you. And I think also the opportunities that were here in this country, um, I always feel that, um, that we continue to have to try to build something better here. And I do always feel a, a responsibility for that. So I um, appreciate it. And thank you for all you and Steph and everyone is doing and the support of um, 
of of people wanting to try to speak truth and beyond that trying to see more progressive policies come into place. Well, that was amazing, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it was kind of cool to um, hear that, like, you know, it's, it's, it is true. Like so few do, uh, times in our lives, do we stop and be like, oh yeah, why, what brought me here? <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad that um, we were there for that. That's cool. Um, and so, and, and building on that a little bit is also like, where can folks go um, to find out more about the work you're doing? Um, yeah. Where can our listeners go? Honestly, it's so funny too, because again, I, I keep, you keep raising the social media and I'm like the biggest, <laughs> which is like funny, like someone got me to download the Twitter app because I was like doing it from a browser. Um, so like <laughs> I still like trying to figure this stuff out. And someone was like, what are your socials? And I had no idea what that meant. Um, so I feel like, you know, um, people can always email me and again, appreciated people reaching out. I We're hoping to have um, a website out that we've been working with some community partners and local artists uh, that's you know hopefully by the time this is out it's out there as well but it's that sort of UHN Gattuso uh, Center for Social Medicine um, should be available and you know really again I'm, I'm unfortunately not the best at tech and staying all on top of the multiple channels and emails but um, really will do all my best if people can reach out and want to and if there's ways to continue this conversation so so really appreciate it. Absolutely. And you know, when we share, we will tag you and everything on on those things um, as well, right, as you do, because that's what the world is now, right? Um, but yeah, thank Andrew, just like Michael and I were really pumped to have you on. It's so nice to hear you were looking forward to it. So thank you so, so much for spending some time with us today to talk about these really, really, really important issues. No, thank you so much. Thanks is mine. I've been looking forward to this for months and hopefully, you know, we're here, as you said, in a, a better stretch of brighter summer and, you know, big thanks to you both for, for thinking of me and, um, you know, carving out this space, safe space for the last half hour to have this conversation. So really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, make sure you're taking care of yourself, Andrew. You know, you're, you're stretching yourself pretty thin. We need you. Uh, our most vulnerable need you. And you give us great hope with leadership like yours. Um, you know, we can do big things. We can get ahead of all of this. So thank you so much and, and take care of yourself. Thank you. Redoubling all the safety to you and yours, Michael and Steph. Thanks again. Wow. I mean, I, I, I know, you know, I threw in that question at the end because I'm like, man, what makes this guy tick? Because it's just the passion. And, and always, even with Dr. Turnbull, it's the same thing. You know, it's just they could do so many things. Right. And I think some people, when they go into medicine, they see they might see and I think mostly with great intentions or they might see big dollar signs. But uh, Dr. Bazzari, man, I mean, he, this is his life. And, and if you follow him like I do on, on Twitter, and I see just this stuff really, really, uh, you know, irks them, drives them and the passion there, um, you know, so it was great for him to uh, be able to share that with us. Yeah, I, you know, this pandemic has really come down hardest on um, folks who are most marginalized by society, as we've seen, and, and our frontline workers working in the healthcare system. Um, you know, and it's it's like I've I've really resented the the waves terminology, like first wave, second wave, third, fourth wave, fifth wave. Um, when really it's like, what do you care about the waves when you're drowning so deep in all of it? Right? Like do you don't even notice the waves anymore? There's been no break because a wave insinuates there's some kind of break. Um, right. And uh, which is something I've learned when I lived on the West Coast in Tofino, <laughs> the surfing terminology, like there, there hasn't really been this um, release or relief yet. And, and I think, you know, we've been training for a marathon and that last mile is, is it really is the hardest. So I just hope, like we all talked about, that we learned from this, um, from a, a, a big level of power that we don't repeat these mistakes. We don't put ourselves in a position as a society where something like a pandemic can break us down and lead to so many preventable deaths if we just prepared a little bit more, uh, put a little bit more attention to it. Um, I think, yeah, it's something that I hope our social justice genie uh, can make happen, you know? Listen, let's not leave it up to that genie. That's, that's on all of us. <laughs> 
it, honestly, right. all of our listeners, all the people taking part in these podcasts, you know, that is on us to push that, do that. And you can make things happen. I mean, I watched in Ontario with the, the, the call from the medical community for sick days mm -hmm. went on and it just on and I, you know, yeah. because they were saying you, you can't, especially in our most marginalized areas in Toronto, you know, in Ontario, you, know, you can't ask people to isolate when they can't take time off work and, and, and do that without, and, and people mm -hmm. like Dr. Bazzari, they made it happen. Now it wasn't to the degree that we hoped for, but they finally caved and said, hey, we're gonna do a little bit about this. We can make change happen. It takes a lot of time, work and pressure, but let's build on this momentum and make that change uh, permanent. Don't you think? I do. Yeah. With a social justice warrior and all of us, we are the social justice genies. And I just want to continue <laughs> forth and think of all the things that we can name um, genies and whatever other things that we can do to build up our army <laughs> to make change. Although army is not the best term ever, but yeah. Anyway, Michael, thank you so much for inviting him on. I think that was a really great conversation. Awesome. Yes. Another one to build on. I'll see you soon. Yeah. See you next week. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.